Let's ask God to help us as I speak from this beautiful poem in God's Word. Open our hearts and our minds and even our eyes, Father God, that we might get a greater sense of your love and your concern and your power and your greatness. As we look at your word, we ask in the name of our Saviour Jesus. Amen. Well, we're doing just two psalms, which I'm titled as a little mini-series, Humble Songs. Last week, we looked at Psalm 138. We've got that first slide. The next one there, we'll get started on those. There we go. There's Humble Songs. Last week, we looked at Psalm 138. And I was speaking about the fact that in that psalm, well, the Lord's exalted. We said, well, who is the Lord? What is he like? Where is he? He is high and above and full of steadfast love and faithfulness for his people. And so there there is no place for any small thoughts about God. And we actually find our strength and our confidence as we humbly recognize who God is, that he is exalted. That gives us strength. Now, that's kind of what I was trying to share with you from Psalm 138 last week. If that is true for Psalm 138, how much more so when we look at the very next psalm, Psalm 139. The Lord is exalted. He is great. He is a big God. Theologians will often use these terms to describe the greatness and the bigness of God. They'll say that God is omnipotent, all power. He's omniscient, all knowledge. He's omnipresent, everywhere. Such a great, big God. Those descriptions give us a factual framework to think about God in fancy words. Uh, things like John, he's a 52-year-old Baptist pastor who lives in Pennant Hills. There's a factual framework for you to know me. But actually, um, that's not me. That is, it's, it describes a part of me. But if you want to know me, you want to know me personally. As a person, you want to know me relationally. Psalm 139 tells us that God is omnipresent that he is omnipotent, that he is omniscient. But it doesn't tell us with a framework of information like that. It tells us about the greatness and power and character of God in personal, relational terms. As King David pens this, you can see King David knows his God. Actually, he only knows his God this much because his God's so much bigger But more importantly out of this psalm, you cannot help noticing that God knows David. And God's knowledge of David, it's just too wonderful. It's too much. And there there is no place for small thoughts about the God of Israel. In fact, so great is he that such greatness demands from every person a response. And there is principally, essentially only two ways to respond to this magnificent God. I'm going to use some analogies to draw out those various two ways of responding. 
Each one of these analogies is based upon this basic premise. God knows you. Like he really knows you. You know, first one, God knows you in the dentist's chair. Don't you love going to the dentist? Sit down in the seat. Stuck there. The face comes over the top, all masked. And another face in the distance. How's it going? Everybody loves the dentist. There is nothing hidden in the dentist chair, is there? The bright lights flood you. There is not a thought or word or deed not exposed. Well, look at how God knows us. You have searched me, Lord. You've examined me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. It's literally you're winnowing, you're sifting all of my going out. Everywhere I go, you're looking at every little bit of it. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. When you're in that dentist chair with your mouth open, it's all exposed, isn't it? There's no hiding can feel a bit shameful, particularly if your teeth aren't so great, if you forgot to floss or brush that morning, if your breath stinks. You're exposed, aren't you? You're trapped. You have searched me, my dentist, and you know me. You know when I have flossed and when I have brushed. You know what I ate for dinner last night. You see all my past dental failures and my fillings and my caps, and my falsies. Everything is exposed before your bold, masked look. And this sense of being trapped and exposed while you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Most people don't like going to the dentist. It's a bit scary. It's actually not that painful in my experience, but it's just like, ah, oh, no. It's limiting. You're stuck in that rotten chair. I know they try to make it comfortable. What do you do when you're at the dentist? Do you fight? Do you argue? What are you doing there? Do you make a run for it? Rip it out. I'm gone. You know, the dentist has studied for many years and has worked and has lots of experience. And the dentist is there to serve you. The dentist is doing all this horrible stuff that you're finding exposing and shameful for your good. Will you trust the dentist? Will you submit to their gaze? Will you let them serve you? Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's exposing. But they know more than you do. So it's just smart to trust them. 
And even in that, lying in in that uncomfortable place, even to find comfort, because I know my teeth are going to be well looked after. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, all the stuff you know about teeth. It's too lofty for me to attain, so I'm just going to submit to you. Or run and fight. Well, it is too much for some people, this scary exposure of this living God. None of us like to be exposed. What do you do? I say the option is to run away, get away, out of that dentist room, away from this all-examining, knowing God. That is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They rejected God. They rebelled against God. They realized that they were suddenly naked, and they ran. Got to get away from this all-seeing, all-knowing God, and they're hiding We all do it. We don't like this shameful exposure from this all-seeing, all-knowing God. He threatens my kingdom. He threatens my shame. I might be judged. So David says, well, where can I run? Maybe I should have a holiday. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I'm I'm about to go on holiday. I'm having an escape. Literally, I'm getting away. I've had enough. I'm getting away. I don't want to see you. I won't see any of you for two weeks, I can promise you. I just want to go away, have an escape, stop thinking about stuff that I've been thinking about. We can want to escape from God often go on a holiday you know it's it's sometimes hard to be a christian on holidays because it's kind of like an escape you've got plenty of time for your prayer and your bible reading and to be godly it can be hard at times because of our wickedness to be a christian when you're away on a work trip and you're all isolated and no one else is seeing to get away from god get away from the routine the problem is god plays peekaboo If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, it's you. Peekaboo, I'm still here. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, in other words, go to where the sun rises. If I settle on the far side of the sea, which for Israel is where the sun sets. Even there, your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. We run, but we cannot hide. For God is always with us, always there for our good. So what are your options for this ever-present God who is there for our good? Well, you can submit to him. Humble yourself and find rest. I'm in this hostile place. I'm a long way from home, but God is with me. Or you can just keep running. Because maybe there's a new spot he hasn't found yet. And so many people keep running. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Oh, I'm safe here. I do what I want here. Well, even the darkness will not be dark to you. And the night will shine like the day, for darkness is like a light to you, God. He's going to shine his light 
wherever you may hide, there is no escape. There is no holiday from God. His knowledge is just too wonderful. You can't escape his presence and power. He's always watching for your good. And it has been this way our entire lives. From conception. In fact, he knows you in the delivery room. Verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, you I saw my unformed body. Your eyes saw my embryo when no one else, not even my mother, knew that I was there. You, Lord, knew. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Mothers care. They can't help it. Let's face it, they carried that child for nine months in their body. They felt that child grow and begin to move, or first signs of that they detected movement. And then this new life came forth from their body, my flesh and my bones. And I fed you. And I loved you and I nurtured you and everything about your life has been dependent upon me. You are my child. Mothers care. It's very natural, but you know, every mother knows that they did not create their child. There's a mystery. Yes, we can break the mystery down at a certain level to various scientific things that happen, but we can't ever get past the mystery of new life, new personality, a new person that God creates. You see, if mothers care for their children who are their child that they bore and fed, and who depend upon them for everything. If mothers care, how much does God care who made you with a purpose, who knit you together in, that, in your mother's womb? God cares. He was there in the delivery room. He was there in the bedroom nine months earlier. You've been in his mind from eternity past. And he is sovereign over all your ways. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All of this means that you're all absolutely perfect. Yes, I know some of you want to be three, ten centimetres higher, but God doesn't. Perfect height. Some of you want different eyebrows, but God doesn't. Perfect eyebrows. Just right, just for you. He planned and purposed it all. He has a 
so much love and concern and care. Now, what do you do when you're loved and cared for and planned and thought about so much? What, what if you submitted to that love? I have a Father who loves me and cares for me, a Heavenly Father. Or what if you just ran away from it and rejected it in your pride? The next two verses, they move us naturally from the delivery room into the family home. They move us from creation into stability, relationship and security. God knows you. Verse 17. How precious are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake... When I awake, I am still with you. So, moms, how often do you think about your kids? Once a day? Once a week? How often are their, their, their lives and their concerns and their doings, how often are they on your heart and in your thoughts? I'll tell you, you all know all the time. I'm always worrying, always thinking, always concerned for my children. If I was to take the sum of my, the mother's thoughts and add them together, they would, oh, what a big book that would be. I wonder what Mary Lou's doing now. I hope she's safe. I hope she doesn't get in the car with her. God thinks about you more than any mother. You are on his heart. You are his child. He is fully engaged, this all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present God. And it's just like in the family home, when I'm awake, when I awake, I'm still with you. You know what it's like falling asleep, you drift off, you disconnect, you sleep. When I awake, it's okay, the world's okay. I'm still with you. I think there's a hint of resurrection here. David says, when I awake, I'm still with you. You're there. I have security. I will not escape from your love and concern. But many try. You know what it's like. You know, if you're a teenager, you certainly know what it's like. Oh, this family home is suffocating me. All these rules, all these restrictions. Why are they so controlling? Why do I have to do this and that? And why doesn't someone tidy up my room for me? Let me be alone. Let me do my own thing. I don't need the family home. They say they love me. They don't love me. I don't need their love. It's just control. And so we get out of the dentist chair because it's so restricting. All this all-seeing examination. And we gotta, we're going to escape to the other side of the world or find some darkness where we can hide, where we'll get away from this all-seeing, all-knowing God. We're going to reject the one who made me just the way I am. And I'm not happy with the way you made me, by the way. I'm going to run from his presence and flee his control and spurn his love, which is no love at all. Because what about what I want to do? 
His knowledge is too wonderful. We want none of it. And so we don't just find ourselves escaping, we find ourselves resisting and fighting against this God who sees and knows and says he loves all. And so we come to this abrupt shift in our psalm. Every human, all of us, we've all had the same birth. God has the same love and concern. He made us. He sees us. He knows us. But the proud resist him and they rebel against him and they actually try to thwart God's purposes and take a stand against God. Get out of my life. I'll resist your control. How, How could anyone do that when God is so loving? That is so wrong. And so David calls on God to act. This is ridiculous. This is such an offense, God. And when these people do this stuff and they turn away from you and they reject you and they're so proud, we all suffer, God. We're all suffering. Why don't you do something? Take up the fight, God. Join the battle. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you, God, with evil intent. Your adversaries, they misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And don't I abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, even in this battle with evil, this struggle in a fallen, messy world, God knows us there too. We are right to hate evil. I hope you do hate evil and injustice. I hope it makes you angry. We are right to dislike and disprove of the pride that rejects the loving, living God. But we need to be very careful as judges, don't we? Because who can truly judge the righteous and the wicked? Only the sovereign Lord who sees and knows all. Not me. I can't ju- not you and not, not, not David here. See, the problem with our rightful hatred of evil and our desire that God would step in and set things right, this is ridiculous. The problem with those thoughts, which are righteous thoughts, is that they're also thoughts that heap judgment on ourselves. Because what makes you so righteous? What makes you such a humble, penitent saint? We're all in the battle. (laughs) In that we all take up and stand against God and show resistance to his rule and sovereignty. And the Lord knows our hearts. And if we were to say to God, do something about this, slay the wicked. Get rid of those who rebel. Oops. Because I'm soon a hypocrite. My words become a boomerang. Slay the wicked, Lord. I hate those who hate you. God knows our hearts and such knowledge is too wonderful because such knowledge as God knows our hearts ends up being condemning for us. There is no one righteous, not even one. And in the battle, we will fall with the evildoers, the enemies of God. You see, this is a very humbling song. 
God is great. God is too wonderful. He is lovingly involved. God loves and cares for us so much. And we cannot escape from him. We can never run and hide. And yet we lift our fist against him and try to push him away and ruin his world. What do you do with this juxtaposition? This abrupt shift to the battle. I'll tell you what you do. In one sense, you do nothing because God has done everything for you. God loves you, as it says. God cares for you, as it says. God is so passionately, personally involved in who you are that he ended the battle. Not to condemn, not to slay the wicked, but to save them. To make us righteous. Jesus, the very holy Son of God, entered the battle and bore the wrath so that the enemies might be released, set free from their captivity. And be made righteous. And be called friends. Jesus triumphed over his enemies by the cross and set the captives free. There's the battle won by the one who came to fight against the evil one. And set us whom he loves free. Two basic responses. You can keep running. You can keep resisting. You can keep rejecting this God who loves you and who's all-seeing and all-knowing. You can fight your way out of the dentist chair, slam the door on the family home, go on holidays, but you will not escape. Because God is great and it's his world. And you are his child. Or you can humble yourself under his love and care. And submit to his sovereign rule and find security as he calls you into his family in Jesus. If we come to the end of this psalm, David makes a life choice. I will not run. I will no longer live in fear of examination. I will no longer resist this overwhelming love that's beyond knowing. I will go home. And ask, as God examines me, that he will do in me what I am not able to do in myself, that he will make me righteous. And prepare me for my eternal home. Here's how David finishes. He says to God, search me, God. Examine me. I'm here. Know my heart. Look at it all. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. All those anxious thoughts, perhaps, of even those earlier verses of this wrestle. Know me, Lord, and see if there is any hurtful way in me, offensive way in me. Cleanse it and lead me in the way everlasting, 
lead me in the way of eternity. God knows you more than you could ever imagine. He loves you with a deeper love than you could ever get your head around. He sent his son to die for you. And the simple challenge I leave with these two humble songs is, is this a comfort? This all-knowing, all-seeing, all-great God, or is it a threat? This knowledge that's too wonderful, is it a, do I want to run? Or do I want to bow down and be flooded with love? There is a saviour. There is comfort Will you turn to him and humble yourself and walk humbly with your God. Amen.